If you've been wishing, hoping, and dreaming about taking your business from six figures to multi-six figures or multi-six figures to seven figures, then I wanna make sure you get our new free guide, the multi-six and seven-figure scaling roadmap. Inside the guide, I pulled back the curtains and I shared all the strategies that I used and they can help you too. First, they can help you triple your monthly sales. I shared proven strategies with you that led to a 3X increase in my monthly sales. Second, I show you exactly how to crush your limiting beliefs. Say goodbye to doubts like, you can't charge that much and there aren't enough ideal clients for you too. Third, how to only work with ideal clients. I show you how to become the go-to expert and attract only the perfect clients and referrals. And finally, I show you how to quantum leap to $20,000 plus every single month. I show you exactly how to take a quantum leap from 8,000 per month, for example, to 20,000 a month. You can absolutely break through your upper limit barrier and enjoy five and six figure months every single month. Make 2024 your dream come true year by downloading your free guide today. Just click the link in the show notes below. Welcome to Quantum Revenue Expansion, where we keep you motivated, inspired, and thinking big. Up-leveling into quantum revenue is a choice that we can all make in any moment and then continue to make that choice to stay in that space each day. On this podcast, Ursula will share revenue growth strategies to reach your next level and introduce you to CEOs just like you who are making it happen. What's your next quantum leap going to be? See it, own it, and take that first step. If this is you, then Ursula wants to invite you to join us at the next 2X Intensive now. Go to salescoachnow.com slash apply. You're listening to Quantum Revenue Expansion with your host, Ursula Menchez. Let's go. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Quantum Revenue Expansion, the podcast where you turn your annual income into your monthly income. Super excited because we have an amazing guest back today. Steve Miska is here with us today, and we're going to have a conversation on how he created the Baghdad Underground Railroad with a group of concerned veterans and citizens and what has happened since then. It's also the title of his book, Baghdad Underground Railroad. And so many things that I want to say about that. But before we get there, I just want to welcome, welcome you back, Steve. Welcome back. So glad you're here. Excited to talk about the book today. I'm super excited to be here, Ursula. And, and as you know, anytime I get a chance to just interact with you and talk about how we combine our superpowers, I'm excited. Awesome. Me too. And I, I just, if you haven't listened to Steve's first interview, definitely go back. It was under Double Your Sales Now, so you can hear his journey, how he really went from being in the military to starting his own business um, in the world of security and what that has led to. But also, of course, he has launched um, a nonprofit since then, which we'll talk about. Before we get there, though, really quickly, if you haven't yet, go to the new website, go to UrsulaInc.co. On the homepage, you can register for our Quantum Revenue Expansion Masterclass. It's simple, easy to do, it's free for you. And on, during that class, I talk about how to create your brand new quantum container to really take your annual income and turn it into your monthly income, how to up-level your pricing, your packages, your marketing, all the things to get there. And then we also talk about how to collapse time which sounds kind of quantum, right? We talk about how to collapse time by adding team, building systems, building processes in your company so you can truly scale to the next level. So go there, UrsulaInc.com, or excuse me, UrsulaInc.co, um, and it's on, on the homepage. We made it super easy. All right, if you haven't yet, we would love to get a review from you. That helps other people know if this is a fit for them to listen to. And you can go, um, go to iTunes or wherever you listen and then come back, go to UrsulaInc.co forward slash um, what is our forward slash giveaway? <laughs> and we have a free gift for you when you leave a review and we'd really appreciate that. All right, enough about what's going on over here. I wanna talk about Steve because this is a little bit different conversation. I've known Steve for years now. I've watched him grow his nonprofit. I've watched him um, just really expand in all the things that he cares about and all the things that he's up to in the world. And sometimes we wanna bring very important topics to the show that do have an impact on you, whether you know it or not. 
that do have an impact on how you live your life, how you grow your business. And Steve really cares about those things. So Steve, again, Steve Miska, author of Baghdad Underground Railroad, Saving American Allies in Iraq. Steve helped dozens of Iraqi interpreters escape sectarian violence at the height of the Iraq conflict. He's the executive, executive director of First Amendment Voice, which you've heard me talk about on the show before, a nonpartisan nonprofit dedicated to inspiring active citizens across First Amendment freedoms. Steve retired after 25 years in the army, served as director for Iraq on the Obama administration, and taught at the graduate and undergraduate levels at National Defense University and West Point. Pretty incredible. So, so many things, um, Steve, and I, you know, we really want to talk about your book today and just, just what's happening in the world, things that we don't hear about, but because you care so much about, you know, freedom and our first amendment and people coming across the aisles politically to work together. I mean, you just, there's so many things that you care about and because of what you did in your military career, you have been more than inspired. I don't even know what the right is, word is. Like this is a this is another mission. I think that you had to say yes to right writing Baghdad Underground Railroad. So, tell us about this journey. Let's just start there. What led you to write the book, and and we'll go from there. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, it, it it has been a journey, Ursula. It, it actually um, took me about five years to write the book. And I resisted writing the book for about five years before that. Um, and so in 2007, 2006, it was, it was just extremely lethal in Baghdad. I was on my second tour. Um, it, and just to put it in context for the audience, the every month in the country, there were over 3,000 people killed due to the violence. So that's a 9-11 every month for the year leading up to when I wrote the story, when I, I start wow. the story in the book. Um, it was essentially a civil war. And any, and so the, the Americans, the, the coalition forces, we were putting our outposts along the sectarian fault lines, basically like a, a referee trying to keep two fighters apart. Right. And our interpreters were going with us, right? They were right in the thick of it with us. And anybody who was partnering alongside Americans became a target. And um, I just, one of my closest interpreters got killed in January, 2007. Two weeks later, a beloved store owner gets killed. The, the store owner is killed by Shia militia. The interpreter is killed by Sunni insurgents. Everybody was after these guys. And I just realized, you know, I can't look myself in the mirror unless I try to do something. And that was the impetus for the, the Underground Railroad and trying to fight our own bureaucracy in many ways and uh, help these guys escape. Because if, if we left them behind, it was almost assuredly they would be killed. Yeah. So one of the things you wrote in the book, so many things, like I don't usually write in my books and thank you for sending this. I had to make notes in pencil because there were just so many things that um, that stood out that I, I wanted to make sure we talked about, but that also I wanted to make sure I remembered as an American citizen because we do take so many things for granted. It's one of the reasons I love being part of First Amendment Voice and all the things you're up and you, you do in the world. But we it's easy to have blinders here. It's easy to just think, you know, I, I live in this great country and that's it. And, you know, and so you wrote, and this was on page 30. I could not close my eyes to the problem anymore. I had to help interpreters stay alive and eventually find their way to safety. From that point on, this goal became a large part of not only the burden of leadership, but also my personal challenge in this crazy, complex country. You also called it, you said, your inner jihad had begun. Mm. And it would at times feel like a jihad against elements of my own government as well, because journalists whose mission it was to hold government accountable became natural partners in this effort. And of course, there were so many journalists that you, that, you know, talked, that interviewed you, that wrote about you, that wrote about what was going on. And you were one of the people, one of the leaders who was willing to speak freely 
and honestly about what was happening. Why? Why? Um, well, uh, I've always been a bit of a nonconformist. So <laughs> from that perspective, you know, I, I never thought I would make it 25 years in the army. I figured, you know, I'm, I used to go home and tell my wife, you know, I'm probably going to get fired today. And she'd just say, shut up and behave yourself. And, <laughs> you know, it was uh, so I never felt like I had to be constrained. And, and quite frankly, kudos to uh, the leaders who tolerated me, I guess, um, you know, because I never the, the people I work for are, you know, my family and, you know, my God, that's it. And so the I never feel like if somebody happens to be higher up in authority, I'm not working for them. I'm working with them on a mission that we collaboratively have. And so anyway, that was that's always been my perspective. Um, and I, I think it, you know, it frustrates uh, people who have the uh, misfortune of becoming my boss uh, because it, sometimes it takes them a while to figure that out. But uh, eventually they get the message. And but in in Iraq, you know, it was just the the my um, contract with the American people, right, was to safeguard their sons and daughters who were volunteering after 9-11 uh, while also balancing the demands of the mission. And this was in addition to that, this was something that we hadn't considered before deploying that leave no one behind, which, which is very much an ethos of the military would have a broader definition because these were partners who were on patrol with us every day. They were sharing not only the same risk, but more risk in many cases because their families were being targeted uh, because they couldn't go home. They, they couldn't live a normal life. They had to stay with us. And so we just together and really tried to figure this out. And um, it, was, it was a journalist who really sparked this in me with just a scathing article that he had written, George Packer, when he was with The New Yorker. And it it, 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 it awoke my energy hot, if you will. Yeah. He, and he wrote betrayed, right? Yes. Yeah. Just a, you know, a 15,000 word article with a one word title and that cut to the chase uh, because we as a country, were not doing what we should do to stand by our closest partners in combat. And it was absolutely, you know, an important message to get out there and it helped awaken many of us veterans. Yeah. You know, as I was reading your book, talking about um, what the lengths you're in, the interpreters had to go through and how they became friends. And I'm trying to remember all their names. So was it George, George had the stores. He, he was the first one to get out. He was a logistician. Um, Nadal had the stores. He okay. was killed by Shia militia. Yeah. And just, just the lengths that they went through. So I'm curious about, and I, as I was gathering, um, you know, what motivated inter an interpreter, right? I mean, part mm. of it, of course, was a better life, right? Like all of us, yeah. like the opportunity to make a decent wage and, um, and to do better for our families. What else motivated the interpreters to help you? Yeah, so um, I get that question a lot. And it's, you know, it's, it's complicated, right? I, the, my first answer would be the same reason you or I might take a position, you know, there are multiple factors, right, that, that go into that decision. Um, but at, and, and those factors will ebb and flow based on the conditions in the country at the time. So um, when we first went in, there was this tremendous hope. Saddam had ruled with an iron fist for decades. And so now you've got these young, idealistic Iraqis who see America as, you know, a promise. And they see what comes out of Hollywood and, and they say, you know, we would we want to experience something like that. Uh, and over time, it became very, you know, obvious that there was tremendous risk working alongside Americans and we didn't have enough forces. And, and so at this, this was the point where we're writing the book where the, the surge became a thing. 
And eventually General Petraeus would lead the surge forces with this new strategy um, that got us out there on the streets to really um, attempt to safeguard the population, which we had, we had been commuting to work before right. then. And uh, so this was a way to really uh, switch to a counterinsurgency type of strategy. And our interpreters were, there was no way we could do that without interpreters. So they were just, they're vital and they're vital in any operation we do around the globe, which is why I, I continue to advocate in that space and why I talk so much about, you know, Afghanistan now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And which we're going to talk about on my list here. And so I want to go back to this idea of leadership though, because I think there's a lot of definitions of leadership out in the world. I think it's very interesting what you said about, um, how you view leadership, that it's a partnership. It's not a hierarchy necessarily, which would really be up against everything. I think the military would teach us, right. You know, especially, you know, just for safety issues and for all the things, but at the same time, that's, it's one of the reasons, as I read your book, it's one of the reasons you were so successful in leading, um, in leading your troops, but also leading the interpreters who came to work for you and developing trust with them, which, I think it's a whole like other, other piece um, because the, the, and I would have to imagine that you were one of the most successful leaders with interpreters, just, just by how you were willing, you know, willing and able to, to work and trust them back. Right. So there's this mutual trust. So anything else you want to say about leadership or what, like, what do you see in the world right now? What are people hungry for? How can we all shift in the way we lead so yeah thanks for that that's um it's always been a passion and really my philosophy is you know you've, i mentioned the competing demands right of of taking care of your people and whatever mission your organization has my philosophy has always been invest in your people take care of that side and there is no mission you cannot accomplish. You might not even need to show up to work anymore because your people will just be unleashed with their potential. And so that's been a, a philosophy. And so in put it in military context, you know, I've met amazing privates and amazing generals. And if somebody's an amazing general, and I, I spotlight, I think a couple of them in the book, you know, they're out on the street trying to figure out how they can help. It's not what we call a dog and pony show where they show up and expect to get briefings and, you know, feted by, uh, you know, colonels. It, and the same goes for just amazing lower ranking folks. If, if they're playing their position on a team and they do it well, invest in them and bring them up and eventually get ready to lose them because they will get cherry picked away. And, it's, you know, and a lot of leaders resist that. But I, I always feel like if I don't have space to elevate this person within my organization, then I owe it to them to let them go and, and continue to achieve their potential. And it's a super hard thing to do, you know, because when you, you form that relationship and you love them in many cases, and all of a sudden, you know, there they go, they get stolen away. It happens all the time to me now in the nonprofit space, <laughs> you know, it's just the way it is, but but I think it's the, it's the way I operate philosophically and it, I don't feel it's let me down ever. Yeah. So for someone who's listening and maybe not in the military, I mean, you have your own company and you work with people in, on boards and you have your, you know, you founded First Amendment Voice. How, what does it mean to invest in someone? Like give us practical um, tools or what, like, I mean, I have a general idea, but I'm curious what that means to mm. you. So let me give you an example. So I have the just the joy right now of my, my daughter is works with me in First Amendment Voice, and she is doing just amazing videography. She literally wrote the script for our Lowry Award ceremony last month, directed and produced it, and it was an Oscar style presentation. It was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, she had the audience crying and laughing during that hour long, you know, experience. It was just, you know, everything you could imagine in that. Um, she had two internships last summer and she came to me and she said, 
um, you know, I really felt good about this one internship. We would meet all the time and the, the company was really supporting us getting to know each other in the company and professionally developing us. And she said, but the other one, I, I don't even feel connected to that. I don't know any of, the, I didn't get a chance to really know them well. And it made me think, and you know, this is some, I'm, I'm a leader who invests in people, right? And I sat there listening to her thinking, I haven't been doing this with my nonprofit. I haven't been creating those opportunities. And so what, what we ended up doing, it was uh, setting up a monthly leadership luncheon where we invite amazing speakers and you will get an invitation one of these days. But what we do is it's just for the staff and we might invite maybe one or two board members if it's appropriate for the subject or maybe one or two other people who have really been passionate about what we're doing as just a, a you know, a, a very unique um, sort of opportunity for them to learn from some amazing people, but it's, it's super intimate, right? There'll be yeah. six to 10 people and we'll, we call it leadership lunch. And depending on what time zone you're in, it might work for lunch, but it's just a chance for, for young, you know, 20 year old staff members to ask a Google executive, you know, about the things that they're concerned about with leadership or, you know, whoever the speaker is. And it, it's just, um, that's been a way that I've been able to invest in people, but it, it just, it's so much more than that, Ursula, because it allows these people who have been in our orbit to also see us from a different perspective and also feel like they're contributing in a very different way, right? They're, they're contributing their leadership skills and ideas. And it's also a networking opportunity because all of a sudden you've got, you know, somebody who really wanted to get to learn something about cyber or whatever the topic is. And it just creates all these possibilities. So um, I'm just super thankful that my daughter helped me see my own organization that I wasn't, I, I feel like I wasn't doing what I I would have been doing in a military organization or in academia for that matter. Um, so yeah. uh, we, we're never done, right? Yeah. We're always, you've always got to keep, you know, thinking about how you're leading and, and soliciting feedback. And, and that's part of it. Communication is such a huge component of leadership. Mm -hmm. What about, so, and I'm just going to put this out there because you, I think we can, we have this idea that in the military, things are a certain way. And then here comes Steve Miska, wears his heart on his sleeve, nonconformist, like, you know, you care so much about people and just the way you connect. I mean, I really feel like you're you just like, you're so kind. And I think that, that we forget that that's part of leadership, especially if we're masculine, like I'm speaking for guys, I don't know, but I feel like that's in our culture, right? Like it's not okay to be kind as a guy, especially not in the military, you have to have a certain persona. So can you talk about that a little bit and how has that, um, how did you balance that in the military? So, you know, I, I spent the first half of my career in the airborne infantry. So we're jumping out of perfectly good airplanes, right? And, and that <laughs> is a very different culture and environment extremely male dominated, right? There were very few women were in the airborne infantry at that time. Um, but, but, you know, you would see you, you have a 110 pound petite woman with almost as much gear strapped on jumping out of an aircraft alongside some 220 pound big lineman looking guy, you know? And um, so anyway, I, I always, you know, coming up through West Point, um, my, if you study leadership, you know, you talk about type Y, type X leaders, you know, sort of the two camps. And I was always type Y. I was always focused on people versus mission. I just felt like the type X uh, approach was using people, right? And then when, then when you were done with them, and that just wasn't my style. Um, and I would say just like in corporate America, just like in the nonprofit world, you see those two types of leaders. The military is no different. 
Yeah. And um, so those are the, the classmates of mine from West Point who I've, I've just really been heartened to see the Army continue to promote up. They're commanding divisions in some cases now, two-star generals, and just doing amazing work, but they've never lost that, that sense that, it, you know, I am serving down. I am serving with the, the men and women in uniform and the families that they represent. That is why I'm here. And so it's very much a servant leader approach to, um, to being in whatever organization you happen to be in. Yeah. Servant leadership, which you extended, you extended that to the interpreters and everyone that you worked with, you extended it. It wasn't, I don't think that was a natural extension at the time, mm. but I definitely feel like that is something that you have, um, you have such a great desire to expand, hence Baghdad Underground Railroad was born. So tell us about, you know, how, how did it come to be? How did you, you know, why'd you choose? I mean, I'm, there's some pretty obvious reasons, I think, why you chose um, Underground Railroad, but I want to hear, we want to hear it from you. Sure. Well, so number one, we called it that at the time. That's what we called it. And actually, I've got a, so uh, one of the things we did, here's the, the yearbook from then, Task Force Justice. So one of the things that, you know, I think is natural for human beings is to dwell on the really difficult days, right? The losses. That's just natural for us. Um, and I felt like I owed it to our soldiers to provide or to really spotlight the good times because combat was like the, the heights and depths of the human experience. And there were days that you just, you just couldn't believe how unimaginably amazing it felt. Um, and I highlight one of those, uh, the Iraqi soccer victory in the Asia Cup. And sorry for the spoiler alert, but um, <laughs> it was, that was better than most Army Navy football games I've been to. You could take a light bulb and hold it up in the air and it would have just lit from the electricity in the air with everybody. Just the amazing sense of hope and potential that came from that. Mm. Um, so you've got that. You know, and so what I tried to do was with the, every soldier got a yearbook and we gave them this. We remembered our fallen, but we really emphasized the positive things that came from this challenging experience, this long duration separated from family. And um, and, you know, the, the publishing firm that published this, when they found out what it was for, they did it for free. Oh, and they wow. sent us, you know, they just said, we're, we're not going to accept any money from you. And they just sent us, you know, however many hundred copies of a yearbook. So every soldier could take one home. And um, that's one of the things, you know, I think psychologically as leaders, we owe it to our organization to, to monitor and emphasize the, you know, the positive. And, that, and that's quite frankly, one of the reasons I love being around you, Ursula, you are a natural at just emphasizing, you know, the, the just uplifting people around you, you give off energy and people, you know, rise as a result of that. Um, anyway, I don't know if that answers your question or where you wanted to go, but it's yeah. part of the story. Yeah, for sure. I mean, well, I think that brings up a great point of just how, how you survived really, how you survived some very difficult times, how you led, you know, your troops, how yeah. you, how you led your out of it by focusing on the positive, because we know a lot of veterans come home with PTSD, different yeah. layers of it. I think coming out of the pandemic, a lot of people are experiencing these things and it can be easy to right now. Like, I mean, for a lot of people it can be easy to focus on what's not going right. And that's, it's something we, we talk about a lot in our community of like, it's a, you have to train your brain and a book like that, like that gift that um, you created helps people remember that there were good parts of things. And that's life yeah. in general, right? There's, there's yeah. dark times and there's good times and we have a choice of what we're going to focus on. And, and that actually, you know, that shifts the neurons in your brain. It shifts the brain chemistry, it shifts all of it. And the more you can train yourself to focus there, the better, by the way, um, 
neurofeedback, neurotherapy is something that my family's, it's, um, we're all having, we're all getting it right now. And I've heard it's great for um, PTSD as well. Mm. All that to say, it helps rewire your brain to focus on those things that are positive. Not that I dwell a lot, you're right. Like I choose to focus on the positive, but it's because of my past and a lot of things that I don't talk about, but it's because of those things that um, I had, like it was a gift and that I had to work to focus on finding the. the mm. Let me, you just triggered another yeah. thing in my mind too. And this came from one of the, the interpreters in spades and it's in the book but humor is so incredibly important, right? And, and Ronnie, one of the characters, one of the, the interpreters uh, was just, he, the soldiers didn't want to see him go when he finally got approved for his visa because he was just so much fun to be around and he would keep everybody laughing and really um, just uh, poke at convention a lot of times. And, and that, is, is, is a defense mechanism in many ways. It's a survival mechanism because of the extreme risk. And so if you can find that, you know, Victor Frankl, you've probably read yes. um, Man's Search for Purpose and, or Meaning, right? And in the Holocaust, in a concentration camp, and how do you survive this incredibly cruel experience? And he, you know, really flags that in an amazing way in that book. And Ronnie uh, does it. And I try to bring that out as much as I can in the story of Baghdad Underground Railroad. Yeah. I've quoted Victor Frankl. I someone that I just think, I mean, if he can survive that in such a way, like what do we, what can we learn from him? And yeah. What learned? So, so many things I want to ask you and we're going to run out of time, but before <laughs> we do that, there's a flag behind you. And we talked about it before, mm. um, the show started. So tell us yeah. about the flag, if you would, and why it's important to you. So there's a photo of the flag in the book uh, between parts one and two, but uh, you'll note that it is blurred out because there are signatures on there. And, and also any Iraqi in the book that could potentially be at risk, their face or faces are blurred. And the reason why is because many of their families are still at risk. And so I didn't want to do anything by nature telling this story that would put anybody in any more danger. Um, but this flag was the motivation for me to actually write the book after I had so much encouragement and I was really resistant doing it. And uh, for a variety of reasons, we don't need to go into that. But when I started writing it, I would see this flag every day and my, my daughter would make fun of me. I had a, a chart. And I put on the chart next to the flag, no zeros. And what that meant was no day should go by without me writing something, whatever it was. And I would track it by time, but at least spending a little bit of time working on it, editing, whatever it was. But the flag was a gift from the interpreters who remained as we were getting ready to redeploy from Baghdad. We had already gotten about three dozen out and we still had about 50 interpreters on the base and they wanted to throw a party and thank us for advocating on their behalf. And I said, absolutely not. We're not. They, they said they want the party to be in honor of me. And I said, no, we're not. I, we're not doing a party in honor of me. So we eventually decided, OK, we're going to celebrate all of us because they weren't going to let it go. And they gave me this as a gift just to. And they gave a lot of the soldiers different gifts that were meaningful to each of them, just to thank them for the work we had done, whether it was find them a sponsor in the United States to help them get their feet on the ground. But yeah, that's the story of the flag. And symbolically, and that's something else, you know, I think if we organize our environment in a way that helps us achieve whatever our goals are, then that is a way to, you know, move along whatever path you're trying to move along. And, and so symbolism, I think is super important. And, and, and it applies to health, right? It applies to our diet. If we've got a bunch of junk food laying around the kitchen, well, we're probably going to cheat quite a bit when we go down there uh, and we're feeling weak. But if we get rid of that stuff and you've got some fruit, you know, well, maybe you'll eat more healthy. And so that was my, my symbolic sort of guidance for writing the book. Yeah. So, which is amazing. And I love that they wanted to celebrate you. And of course you're like being a servant leader. It's not about me, but 
you yeah. said they, so okay so a couple so many things steve we could talk forever <laughs> but we don't have enough time part two mm. america yeah so uh most people one of the things I'm resisting is get letting this book get pigeonholed as another Iraq memoir or another combat veteran memoir. It absolutely is not. And one third of the book is set in the United States. And it's about the stories of the sponsors who were almost all courageous women who opened their doors to welcome young Iraqi men into their lives. Um, and I'll give you one example. Uh, Madonna was a widow in Tucson. And I had just the, the wonderful experience of getting to interview her as I was writing the book to tell the story. So she's a widow. Her only son is deployed to combat in Baghdad. And he calls her up and says, mom, I need some help. Can you sponsor Ronnie when he gets to the United States? And uh, she says, absolutely. You know, my son is asking, I'm going to do this. And she goes to work the next day. And all of her girlfriends thought she was nuts. They were trying to counsel her. Are you going to let some strange Arab male come live in your house? He could be a terrorist, you know, this and that. And she said, I know my son would not put me in harm's way. And uh, so anyway, when she went to pick up Ronnie, it, and of course, she knew that instinctively, but you still have those, those underlying anxieties, right? And, and um, so she goes to the airport to pick up Ronnie for the first time. And she took one look at him and she said, Steve, I knew he was going to be like a second son to me. And of course, he was. And he did what all sons do to their moms. So this is a spoiler alert for you, Ursula. He broke her heart. He enlisted in the army and then he deployed back to combat. So both of her sons were in combat at that time. Uh, so anyway, but those experiences, I had no idea how hard they were going to be, how, you know, my mom was one of the sponsors and I didn't know what I was asking her. I was in Germany at the time and my family getting ready to play back to Iraq um, and I just needed help and I didn't know who else to ask. And so, you know, me, I'm a 39 year old lieutenant colonel in the army at the time. I did the same thing any soldier did. I asked my mom for help. And she said, of course. And when I interviewed her and my stepdad for this book, Ursula, I could not believe what I was hearing. I just kept thinking, I'm so sorry I asked you to do this because it was hard. But every one of them to a T, all the sponsors said they would absolutely do it again. It was the most, one of the most meaningful things they've ever done in their life. And they know that they were, they were able to join the war effort, right? They were able to serve our country out of uniform and, and save lives as a result of that. And so that's, that's the advocacy work that I do now. It's all about, you know, Afghan interpreters right now, Iraqis are still at risk, but it's so important that America understand the commitments that the veteran community made with our Afghan or Iraqi partners and why it's so important to us that we stand by them now that they're in harm's way and that everybody can play a role in that. It's not just, you know, veterans and their families stepping up. There are a lot of civic organizations, church groups, others that are stepping into the void to help fill the gap in our government resettlement agencies. Do you want to talk about that really quickly, just real time, what's happening uh, for sure. your Afghan, our Afghan interpreters? Yeah, so I think every, everybody's aware that we're, we are withdrawing from Afghanistan. We're about halfway complete with that withdrawal. The president said, you know, by September 11th, but we are anticipating that will be done by July 4th. And so it is fast. And there are 18,000 Afghan interpreters who are currently in the backlog applying for a visa. We have not done a good job. Uh, the bureaucracy is so slow. There is absolutely no way we're going to get through that backlog. At the height of efficiency, and I use that term loosely, we were doing 4,000 visas a year at the, in the Obama administration. So those 18,000 interpreters represent 
more than 50,000 additional family members. So we're talking about 70,000 people who are at risk in Afghanistan right now. I just got a note last night about an interpreter who got approved for a visa and was brutally murdered by the Taliban just last night. They're spreading it all over you know, Facebook, basically as a message to others that do not try to flee. Um, and this is the type of, you know, we owe it to them. They saved our lives in many cases. They, they would warn us of when an IED was on a route, take a different route, or um, so many other ways that they were our cultural eyes, ears, mouthpieces to make sense of a very foreign environment for us. And the risk that they took on was amazing. And so we owe it to them to stand by them and help them get out of harm's way now. So if someone wants to help, I know one of the things we talked about is there's, you know, there's the government, the government taking action and um, approving visas and, and heartbreaking what just happened. I, um, and then when someone gets here, one of the things you said to me is there's, there's a lot of organizations, like there's a lot mm -hmm. of citizen um, driven ways to help uh, once people are here. So if someone wants to get involved, how can they? Sure. You, uh, well, there are a lot of nonprofits that have filled the gap around the government resettlement agencies. So there's about nine resettlement agencies. They are dealing with multiple challenges all the time. But the last time we did it in evacuation of this scale was in the 90s with the, uh, the Kurds and the Kosovar Albanians. And so they haven't done this in a while. So they'll need our help. Um, so the best way to do it is reach out to nonprofits that are involved in the space. You've got No One Left Behind. You've got Miri's List in uh, predominantly in L.A., but I'm sure they're going to grow, uh, continue to grow with all the refugees that they're trying to balance. Um, the if if you know of somebody who is in harm's way and they need assistance from a legal perspective, navigating then IRAP, the International Refugee Assistance Project, is the go-to organization. They're based in New York, but they have field offices in uh, Amman, Jordan, Beirut, elsewhere, and they advocate on behalf of some of the most vulnerable refugees in the world. So those are a few nonprofits. Veterans for American Ideals is doing wonderful work with uh, out of New York, and it's a veteran network across the country. Um, but really what I would, I would recommend is, is as a first step, call your member of Congress, call your senators and ask them to join the chorus. It is a, it's rare in our day and age that we have bipartisan anything going on. This is a bipartisan issue. Republicans and Democrats on the Hill are coming together led by the combat veterans amongst them to say, we need to do this. We need to evacuate these people now before we lose the, the influence to be able to safeguard them. And as uh, we've done it before, we evacuated 130,000 Vietnamese to Guam in 1975. And you know, it's something that we, we should leave a conflict with dignity. And this of anything that we do as we withdraw is the number one thing we should be focused on. Thank you for that. And we'll get as much as we can in the show notes too for links. Uh, so last but not least, you, you're, you're on the book tour, you're getting the word out about what's happening in the world and protecting as many interpreters as you can. But what's the question that no one has asked you yet about the book that you wish we would? Hmm. Wow. That's a hard question. Um, you know, because it goes, so well, let me. Or even like, what do you want us to know that no one's asked you yet? Yeah, let me reinforce what I think is a major theme, but it, I think it's, it's maybe subliminal for a lot of readers, right? But really, at the end of the day, what the book is about is how do you maintain your humanity amidst an environment of extreme violence? And there are, you know, you, you were talking about the neurological therapy. Um, I remember a, a journalist, Bing West, who um, embedded with us 
he was interviewing some of the people the Iraqi army had detained. And, and these were people who had been torturing people and killing people. And he, I remember him saying, I talked to this one guy who had tortured and killed over 30 people. And he said he was changed. He, he really wasn't sure that there, there was a way to reach him on an emotional level, right? And so that's one extreme, right? And then you've got those of us in uniform who are resisting the urge that, that you get from sort of the Hollywood um, war theme of, you know, combat being glamorous. And, um, and we were preaching to our soldiers, look, you absolutely should defend yourself if you have to, but let's just get something straight. If we are engaged in what we call kinetic activity, right? Shooting at people, we are losing the fight that day. If we are engaged in a firefight, it's, I'm not telling you not to do that because we have to defend ourselves. We have to defend uh, the people the Iraqi people. But if we're doing that, it's playing into the narrative of our enemies and it's undermining the legitimacy of a government that's supposed to be providing security. And that's a, a counterintuitive message. But at the end of the day, we were trying to maintain our humanity amidst all of this chaos. And that's a theme that, that I hope comes out. And maybe it's not explicit in the book, but it's, it's, probably the most important theme, I think, that comes out of the book. I think it's very explicit. I think that, I mean, I think it's part of who you are and it's definitely uh, embedded in the book. So Steve, I just wanna say, I wanna say thank you. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for um, putting your message out to the world. Thanks for caring about people. And that's the other message, the theme that I got. And I think that's tied to our humanity. At the end of the day, you know, most of the world wants the same thing right? Yeah. They, they want freedom. Yeah. They want to be able to live their lives. They want to be able to take care of their children. They want to be able to, you know, choose their religion. I mean, and these are things that very separate from your book. So just everyone, this is Steve separately putting this book out in the world, separate from first amendment voice, which you also founded. So we're making that very clear, different, distinct, separate. At the same time, I'd love it if you'd share a little bit about first amendment voice it is the June membership drive and it's so easy to become a member. So would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. And, and thanks. Yeah. Thanks for making that point because I'm, I am the executive director of First Amendment Voice, um, but we have a, a policy. We call it the 50 yard line policy. We do not advocate on behalf of any particular policy. So I am doing the advocacy in my personal capacity. Um, but the First Amendment Voice is all about encouraging citizens to actively participate in our form of government, that it only works with an active citizenry. And so what we do is we, we provide education, we provide tools for engagement, but ultimately we, uh, we attempt to inspire. Um, and our tagline, citizenship is not a spectator sport, is all about that. It's about inspiration, that we all have something to contribute whether it be in our school, whether it be in our, our Rotary Club, church, at the local government, city council, at the state government, at the federal government. And, uh, we, and, and we should think about that because I think civics have, have largely disappeared in many places from our education. And uh, so we've got generations of, of young people coming up who aren't even sure what citizenship is all about and why is it so important. So that's what First Amendment Voice is about. Our membership drive, we do it once a year. It's June all the way up to July 4th weekend. And we've got just some wonderful um, opportunities to, to network with other civically minded individuals to learn from each other, to inspire each other. And so if you wanna learn more about that, I'd, I'd ask you, one of the best places to go is our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube. We've got a membership video right there. Uh, it's two or three minutes long and you can learn about what is involved with our membership and how to get more involved. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And it does end on the 4th of July, 
I think that's very interesting, as does the um, goal of, um, I can't even think of the word, of allowing the Afghans out of um, Afghan, Afghanistan to protect them, all ending on July 4th. I find that very interesting. So for everyone, you know, be thinking, to be thinking about what freedom means this month as we move into the July 4th holiday. And I think coming out of the pandemic and just all of the world issues that are happening right now, it's a great time to be in reflection. Steve, thank you for coming back. We love having you on the show. We wish Ursula, you so much success with the book. I am excited with it. And, and let me just emphasize one thing, because you just triggered that about July yeah. 4th, you know, and, and it goes back to what can, what can we do, right? And it's so common nowadays when somebody meets a veteran to say, thank you for your service, right? So the veteran community, our message right now is beyond just simply saying thank you for your service, put it in action, help us save our Afghan allies, so help us do that. That would be one of the most meaningful ways you can thank us for our service because if we don't do that, we feel like we're violating our own ethos that was inculcated in our time and service of leave no one behind. So we feel like we're violating that ethos and we feel ashamed of our country for not doing more to protect them. And so my question is, is that how we want our young men and women to take off their uniform and think about their time and service? I don't think so. I think Americans are an incredibly generous people. And if you really wanna thank your veterans out there, then please get involved in this issue. Leave no one behind. I think that's a great way to end this show and to take action to support our veterans, not just thank them. All right, Steve, thanks again for being here. Um, everyone, you. check out what check out Steve's book. Definitely get a copy and check out First Amendment Voice, see how you can be more involved there. And also check out just locally. If you're in the United States, find out how you can support veterans. And for our listeners all over the world, you know, find ways that that you can support those ideals, those things that you care about most as well. All right, everybody, that's it for now. We'll see you back soon. Thank you for joining us today. And if you are ready to make your next quantum leap, let's do it. Ursula invites you to join us at the 2X Intensive. Go to salescoachnow.com slash apply. Don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.